Once upon a time, there was a town in the heart of America where human beings lived in harmony with nature. Every morning, prosperous farmers awakened to a dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, and wrens. Wide clouds drift across green fields, and visitors flock from across the nation to see nature in all her splendor, to fish in the rivers and admire the blaze of color found across every street, park, and hill. But suddenly, an evil blight strikes the land. Vegetation withers and dies as though a fire has swept through the once flourishing fields. Previously healthy cattle and sheep sicken and die. No more anglers visit the streams, for there are no more fish to be found there. Soon, the sound of birdsong is only a memory. In backyards, feeding stations are deserted, and the few birds to be found tremble violently and can no longer fly. This town never existed, but nevertheless, it changed the world forever. It was conjured by the imagination of marine biologist Rachel Carson in a 1962 book, Silent Spring, as a warning against the unadulterated pollution of the natural world by pesticides that threaten human, plant, and animal life. Condemned by her enemies as a communist spinster, a fanatic who wished to plunge humankind back into the dark ages and leave the earth to be reclaimed by insects, in truth, Carson was a scientist and a humanitarian brave enough to speak truth to power. Her work directly inspired the foundation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and today's environmental scientists and activists are her legacy. In 2022, another kind of pollution threatens our world. Greenhouse gases wreak havoc with the climate and threaten human prosperity not only in the American heartland, but across every nation and community. Nowhere on Earth is truly safe from the effects of climate change. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. The transition to a net zero economy is of existential importance to the future of our planet. And the world needs $4 trillion of new financing a year to meet this challenge. In this episode, we look at the role of the ESG debt market and the critical role it will play in financing our low-carbon future. Joining us are Mary-Therese Barton, equity partner of the Big Tech Group, Philip Buff, head of credit research at Big Tech Asset Management, Emer Tiftik, director, sustainability research, Global Initiatives at IIF, and Sonia Gives, Managing Director and Head of Sustainable Finance at IIF. The host is Ben Robinson, co-founder of Aperture. Sonia, I'm going to come to you first, if I may, because I thought a good starting point would be for you to set the scene by showing some of the projections for the growth of the ESG debt market over the coming years. Getting to a net zero carbon economy isn't so much a technology challenge as it is a financing challenge. The world needs $4 trillion in clean energy investment annually if we're going to get there. And so I thought a good jumping off point would be to ask you, do your projections suggest that we can grow this market fast enough and large enough in time to save the planet. So, Sonia, over to you. You know, the short answer to your question is is absolutely yes. The market growth potential is, is 
absolutely there, but the conditions have to be right. I mean, these markets still face hurdles, right? We have a lack of global standards. There's just too much complexity in terminology and classification. And indeed, the, the regulatory framework is still evolving. The markets are also still quite small. So ESG-aligned securities still only represent around 3% of global bond markets. But, you know, the good news is, in many ways, the preconditions for rapid market growth are really already in place. I mean, number one, you've got strong investor demand for sustainable investments. Absolutely. You've got significant product innovation in recent years, and you've had some steady and gradual improvements in market depth and liquidity. But one of the biggest drivers of market growth is, of course, the top-down steer from policy and regulation towards sustainable investment. This is a giant push to, to, to mobilize private capital, and it's been in the works for years, especially in, in Europe and the UK. It's also championed by the international financial institutions and the multilateral development banks, in many cases, you know, working hand in hand with the private sector. And the other big force, of course, is bottom up, right, in terms of, of market growth, the investor demand. So 2021 saw a record surge in flows to ESG-aligned securities. Sustainable debt issuance hit a fresh high of over 1.4 trillion in 2021. That's almost double the pace of 2020, which was itself a record, right? And ESG bonds accounted for 1.1 trillion of that. So the bulk of it is ESG bonds. So looking ahead, if we see favorable market conditions continue, our bull scenario, which really does seem quite likely, ESG bond issuance could reach over 2.2 trillion this year, and then over 4.5 trillion by 2025. And we expect green bonds to continue to dominate, but also significant growth in other key areas as well, like sustainability-linked bonds and social bonds. But I think that we still need to overcome a few impediments to scale. We need more progress on harmonization, or at least kind of interoperability between sustainable finance taxonomies and investment terminology. So that's one hurdle. And therefore, we need more coordination across investment frameworks in different jurisdictions. We need more policy support for sustainable investment. And an effective regulatory and policy backdrop can help, which could include oversight and mitigation of climate risk, as well as appropriate carbon pricing mechanisms. And finally, you know, the, a, a final hurdle here to mention is that we need more comprehensive data and a very well-functioning ESG ratings process. This could include more transparency on ESG data and ratings providers uh, and having this sort of you know, market infrastructure in place that could really boost demand for and supply of ESG debt. Fantastic. Thank you, Sonia. That was a very useful and comprehensive overview. And I think a lot of the, those issues we'll, we'll dig back into over the, over the coming questions. But if I wanted to come to you next, because what the report says is that the ESG fixed income market has essentially converged into four categories, green bonds, sustainability bonds, sustainably linked bonds, social bonds, and transition bonds. To what extent do you think that the rate of innovation has started potentially to slow, or do you think that we'll also get you know, new categories over the coming years? I think if, if anything it shows that innovation is, is well alive in sort of a, the broader fixed income markets uh, with all the the progress we've made with uh, ESG-labeled 
debt in general. Obviously, currently, green bonds dominate the market, but we've seen sustainability-linked bonds show the highest growth year over year. There's two reasons for that. There's some uh, companies who are in sectors that need to transition and hence are not eligible for, for, so to speak, use of proceeds bonds, or they don't have enough capex to dedicate to a specific project. And we've been seeing a lot of companies in the high yield space take advantage of that. Social bonds will also continue playing a key role, in my opinion, but I think there, to Sonia's point on, on regulation taxonomies, uh, will probably move a bit faster once the EU has, has decided on its social taxonomy. But I think overall, some consolidation is also not a bad thing. We've had a lot of innovation. So taking a pause here and, and focusing what I think the future of the market will be around green and, and sustainability linked bonds is, is not a bad thing. In terms of further innovation, I think some interesting uh, things could happen around the securitization market or also the structured products uh, market. And there, I think a lot of the work that the World Bank has done uh, looks uh, quite interesting. Mary Therese, over to you. I wanted to ask a question about emerging markets here, which is, are we seeing the same variety and richness of ESG fixed income instruments in emerging markets? In, in a way, is, is there um, higher vulnerability to climate change acting as a spur for them to issue more ESG instruments? And first of all, an answer to the first part of your question is, unfortunately, no, we haven't yet seen a variety in richness. But I'd like to add an, a yet there. And as we saw in a report as well, I think we can expect a huge amount of issuance in the EM space. And we've already started to see that growth almost exponentially over the last year in terms of the amount of issuance. So in the EM credit market last year, ESG label bonds accounted for close to 20% of overall issuance. And that was just 7 or 8% just a few years earlier. So we're seeing a huge amount of issuance there. And then why? Of course, the vulnerabilities, yes, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's a really interesting tool to help EM countries who have difficulty more with the financing of many of the projects that will need to be looking at to think about ways of meeting expectations of the international community. Because as we saw in COP26, what's clear is EM has to be part of the solution. So yes, EM countries are among those which will be the most vulnerable to climate change. Seen that in studies we've conducted with um, an Oxford Smith School showing economic output in some countries could be 60% lower by 2100 if targets aren't met. But at the same time, EM countries actually are some of the largest emitters of greenhouse gases as well. So they actually have to be part of the solution. And I think this is where the development of ESG label bonds is very interesting to help EM markets be part of the solution, but also to look to overcome some of these vulnerabilities. And obviously, it's no surprise or no accident that we saw this growth in the wake of the global pandemic, where we saw a huge increase in social pressures in many markets. And for example, particularly in Latin America, which actually accounted for 30% of the ESG labeled issuance. Although anthropogenic global warming is a new phenomenon, History already provides us with rich and frightening examples of the power of climate change to cause great suffering. The year 1300 marked the end of 300 years of warm weather in Europe and the beginning of the Little Ice Age. Frost and crop failures in Poland and Russia led parents to sell their children into slavery. Storms drowned hundreds of coastal towns and cities and thousands died across the continent in the Great Famine. The catastrophes of the Little Ice Age are a potent and chilling reminder of the importance of acting now to prevent our own future being marked by such tragedy. 
Right, so we're going we're to move on to the second topic now, which is around ESG market performance. In, in aggregate, since the end of 2017, volatility-adjusted returns on green bonds have been very similar to those on conventional bonds. Could you explain how that's possible, given or despite maybe the extra and sometimes relatively stringent requirements of green bonds over conventional bonds? Will that performance persist, do you think? Sure. I think there's three points at play here. The first one is we we have to think about the starting point of, of, of green bonds versus sort of plain vanilla bonds. When they get priced in the market, they're usually priced inside. So it makes sort of total return performance or outperformance versus plain vanilla bonds a bit more difficult. I think another point is sort of the sector bias we've we've observed in the past, and it's really dominated by three sectors. Uh, if we think about utilities, uh, real estate, and financials, so there's a bit of a sector bias as well when we have to think about performance. And the third one is is the supply and and, and demand uh, technicals. The demand is, is is very strong for ESG labeled debt in general, and supply still needs to grow to meet that demand. And I think that last point sort of offsets points one and two a bit. But at the end of the day. Uh, we have to be clear, there is no structural difference between a plain vanilla bond and an ESG-labeled bond. But if I have to think about sort of the next five or 10 years, I would differentiate between short-term expected returns and long-term expected returns. And I think the short-term will still be very technical-driven by supply and demand imbalances. But in the long-term, I would actually expect the issuer uh, who has a solid and a transparent, sustainable strategy, regardless of what he is issuing, whether it's a labeled debt or not, to outperform over time. Thank you very much, Mary Torres. I want to ask you a question next around um, about emerging markets because most of the green bonds that have been issued today have been issued in either euros or, or US dollars and are largely concentrated on, on sure economies, ex-China. I'm just wondering in your expectations whether that's going to change over the coming years and I suppose more particularly how that's going to change. I think it will change in the upcoming years because I think ESG labelled bonds provide a very interesting tool to help emerging countries meet many of these challenges face on. So I think it's the right tool for the right asset class. And so I think this is definitely going to be an area where we see it growing. As you quite rightly said, it's mainly concentrated in the more lower yielding, mature emerging markets. Um, that tends to be China, Korea, also Chile. But we are expecting to see that extend out to other markets. So over a year ago, we saw Egypt issue a green bond, which was actually the first high yielding uh, country in that region to be issuing a green bond. And we'll be expecting further issuance. Uh, this year, there's indications that we'll see issuances from Ghana, Kenya, potentially, Cote d'Ivoire. And what's interesting for me is, while in terms of EM green bond issuance, it's generally about 75% investment grade. Our index is only 50% investment grade. So even just to match our index composition, we're going to have to see an increase in issuance from high-yielding markets. Thank you. Emery, um, next question to you is about market liquidity. So investment behavior for ESG instruments tends to be much more buy and hold, which, um, which dampens liquidity for, for these instruments. The question I want to put to you is, why do you think that is the case and do you think that that kind of behavior will, um, will stop being so prevalent as these ESG instruments or the universe becomes more mainstream? So for me, the simple answer is the following. So ESG bonds are the diamonds. So you just buy and hold them. So that's the reason. But we want them to be gold. 
so that there will be a kind of a secondary market so that people want to trade. Don't misunderstand me. Diamond is much better than gold, but we need gold here. So, and, and you are absolutely right. I mean, so investors buy and hold behavior is the main reason behind the uh, low levels of daily trading activity in, in secondary markets, but uh, despite the strong market growth. And this mainly reflects actually investors' commitment to reach net zero, right? They are trying to decarbonize their portfolio. So they are extremely hungry to find ESG labeled bonds. And this trend is going to continue for some time to go. It's not going to diminish anytime soon. Uh, that said, we should acknowledge that the trading volumes are increasing. Right now, green bonds are the most liquid segment of the market, followed by social bonds. And this is kind of a function of the outstanding amount of the available securities. One important point is, I think, the following. So we really need to test the liquidity of these markets during a financial stress. So, for example, the peak of the COVID crisis was kind of a test, but not exactly. At that time, we have seen a significant peak up in trading activity in green bonds. This is a good sign. So they, they have the capacity to digest significant changes. But still, again, we need to collect more data. We need to watch this closely. In our turbulent age, it is easy to despair at the scale of international cooperation required to mitigate the climate crisis. But sometimes, when scientists sound an alarm, the world listens. In the mid-1980s, they reported that a hole was growing in the ozone layer over Antarctica, caused by man-made chemicals found in aerosols, refrigerators, and other everyday products. The shield that protects the Earth from the sun's radiation was rapidly disappearing. But rather than sit around and equivocate, the world's leaders acted in concert, adopting the Montreal Protocol, an agreement to ban the harmful chemicals that were depleting the ozone layer. It was ratified by every government on Earth, the first and currently only UN environmental agreement to achieve this. The hole in the ozone is set to close by the 2060s. And scientists believe that by adopting the protocol, we have prevented another degree of global warming. Um, so we're going to move on to this third topic now, which is um, ESG and debt bond markets. And actually, I wanted to start off not with uh, one of my questions, but with a question we've had here from the audience, uh, from somebody called Gallia. And um, so I'm going to put this one to you if, you're, if, if, if you don't mind taking this question. And if others want to comment, uh, please do so. So the question is, how does an investor define which bond is related to sustainability area and which is not? For example, oil producers invest in development of clean energy, but would they be considered clean ones? It really is a, a fantastic question. It's right at the heart of everything we're going to talk about in this portion of the program. I think it gets to a very central issue, which is an evolution in the regulatory and supervisory framework. So around things like classifications and labeling, you have an entire debate around taxonomies, which can be very specific to individual regions. And at the same time, you have the market going ahead, you know, in its own direction. You have groups like, like ICMA, which have been very central in the development of standards, classifications around green bonds or sustainable bonds, the whole panoply there. And you also have other sort of NGO-led efforts, which look at different taxonomies and classifications. 
different global investors might have their own way of, of defining things. So when you say, how do you, how do you decide what's what? We're in a, a period of great trial and error, experimentation, converging toward uh, commonly accepted definitions. And that's absolutely the key to the growth of this market. So um, one of the really big um, initiatives has been the one from the EU, right? the Sustainable uh, Finance Disclosure Reports, the SFDR, which is aiming to alleviate the risk of greenwashing. And I suppose the question is, some of the, um, the classifications in that report are so broad, right, that do you think it's really helping to alleviate the risk or do you think it actually might be creating the sort of gaps and loopholes for people to for that risk to actually be uh, increasing? So do you see some paradox in some of the new around the new standards that, that or, mm -hmm. or the new requirements that are emerging? That is that is another good question. And I think you have to dive into the alphabet soup of, of European regulations. Um, let me start with just a quick definition for anybody who's not following this super closely. Article 9 products have an explicit sustainability objective. So it's a more stringent categorization than Article 8, which simply promotes broader environmental or social characteristics, but doesn't have them as an overarching objective. And then just as an aside, if instruments fall into neither definition, neither Article 8 nor Article 9, they're defined as Article 6 products, and those do not incorporate sustainability in the investment process. The, the breadth of Article 8 classification does kind of raise concerns about greenwashing, but it's a challenging situation, right? If you go for a more stringent approach, you could reduce concerns about greenwashing, but at the same time, you could sort of stifle the, the, the growth of the market. So the way forward, you know, as SFDR moves ahead, is going to be for regulators and market players to collectively agree on standards and benchmarks that reflect and clarify these classifications. So in, in that sense, it, it is a reflection of the broader taxonomy discussions and the need for, for coordination. And there's likely to be some, some fine tuning of this as we go along. The fraction of ESG uh, fund assets allocated to emerging market securities, as we've been discussing, is, is only a small fraction, right? How quickly and how will we um, address this underrepresentation, and you know, what will be this, the biggest drivers? Yes, it, it's a tiny amount in terms of EM ESG funds. The main index provider for emerging fixed income launched a suite of ESG funds back in 2018. And they've actually been surprised by the growth in AUM being managed against those funds. It's about um, already about 25 billion and, and it's growing as well. And last year, in terms of a flow into emerging market fixed income as a percentage of assets, ESG funds saw a much larger proportion. Um, I think it was 23% of outstanding AUM of ESG EM fixed income funds. That was the size of a flow versus only 3% for non-ESG funds. So there's clearly demand, and I think we'll see that demand grow. And obviously, as you said, the alphabet soup of SFDR, that's going to be a huge focus this year, with many mainstream EM fixed income investors having to make a decision about whether to be Article 6 or Article 8. And, you know, Philip has referenced this as well. You know, an understanding of sustainability is really at the heart of the assessment we make as investors. So I think most investors will say, yes, sustainability is at the heart of our approach. We'll be looking to move to Article 8, but just really grappling with how to measure that. 
So I do think the number of vehicles available for explicitly considering ESG bonds and um, sustainability issues is going to be increasing. I'm going to come back to you, Emery, for, for another question. So achieving net zero requires that the share of green bonds as a percentage of total issuance rises above 50%. Today, um, green bonds account for 1.2, that was 1.3% of total bond issuance. How are we going to achieve this massive increase in green bond issuance? Uh, another great question. So uh, actually, I hope you will have a chance to go over the report tomorrow. There, there will be a bunch of interesting small practical exercises there for you. And one of them is about so what we need to do to achieve the net zero. So, you know, NGFS has these famous uh, climate scenarios. And so net zero current policy scenario, so delayed net zero scenario. Under each of these scenarios, so there's a corresponding ESG bonds. So we can calculate them. So what does it mean? So if we assume that the pace of the transition in the global bond markets will be in line with the energy consumption patterns, we can reach some, significant, some certain levels, for example, so if you want to reach the net zero by 2050, the size of the climate-aligned ESG bond donors needs to reach $60 trillion by the end of this decade. So right now, remember, that the, the size of the market is $2, 3000000000000 trillion. This is a significant amount of growth potential. But again, to just give you some perspective, during this period, we are expecting the total size of the global bond market to reach to $200 trillion, so over $65 trillion higher than the current level. So combining these two figures, what does it mean? The growth needs to come through the climate bonds. So, but are we gonna able to achieve this? This is not an easy task and requires a sharp surge in climate bond issues. And here, I think the success depends on a couple of key parameters here. So climate bonds need to become mainstream. So right now, uh, Philip uh, mentioned it in the beginning, there are five, six type of bonds, ESG bonds. It, it is not too much, but it is also too much at one hand. So we need some kind of a consolidation. So I believe that if we really want to reach these net zero targets on a portfolio level, one time, at one level, at, uh, we need to somehow create the label of climate bond. So everything will, climate bonds will be an umbrella label and everything else will shape under it. So we are not gonna have a green bond or social bond. We will have a green bond and social bond, green bond and KPI linked bond. So this is, this is the way how I think things will, uh, might evolve going forward. And the second important thing I think Again, this is kind of related with the emerging markets. So we cannot uh, ignore the local currency bond markets. It is extremely crucial to see more activity in local currency EM government bond markets. So they need to be greened. They need to be climate aligned. So these are the two things that I think will shape the discussions over the next five years or so. So. Son, you started at the, in your introductory remarks to talk about this, but maybe I could ask you just to comment in slightly more detail on, on how we are moving towards achieving transparency across different jurisdictional regulations and guidelines to arrive at this global investment framework. 
No, indeed. And I, I, I think that's a, a very clear answer and it reflects a lot of the, the views that you hear when you talk to people about this subject. In, you mentioned transparency and transparency kind of falls into two categories, one of which we've discussed around labeling and classification. You need transparency there, which gets to the taxonomy question. But you also need transparency in, in terms of disclosure, right? And that's a key part of the puzzle, ESG disclosure. Reporting, you know, it's complex. If you don't, but if you don't have good disclosure, you can't understand impact. And therefore, if you don't understand impact, then it leaves you vulnerable to, to concerns about greenwashing. So disclosure is certainly improving, uh, but progress is uneven and the level and quality of disclosures vary across sectors and across uh, geographies. But one thing is, is abundantly clear, uh, and that is the desirability of a, of a harmonized global framework for ESG disclosure. You see this referenced in the work of the G20, the Financial Stability Board, uh, and it's just increasingly widely recognized by the private sector as well. However, we estimate that there are well over 200 policy and regulatory measures around ESG disclosure in different parts of the world. So it's very still highly fragmented with big differences in particular between the very proactive EU approach and a somewhat more cautious approach in, in the US and some other jurisdictions. Again, this, this highlights greenwashing risks. Now, the establishment of the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, is going to make a big difference, especially if it attains a broad international support. So if they're armed with these better disclosure standards, it's gonna be easier to make progress on harmonization and alignment in taxonomy and sustainable investment terminology, and that's also gonna help. And the G20 Sustainable Finance Working Group here, I think I would highlight their efforts around alignment on, on taxonomy, as well as promoting global disclosure standards. And finally, and this is kind of an interesting point, I mean, improvements in technology are continually making it easier to monitor impact of green investment in something closer to, to real time. And at the end of the day, that's, that's kind of what it's all about. If we have a common understanding of what sustainable investment is, so taxonomy classifications, and if you can demonstrate and clearly report on the impact of your investment, then there should be far fewer concerns about, about greenwashing going forward. As we earlier talked about the quality of the data that's absolutely intrinsic to, to arriving at ESG um, or, or assessing ESG impact, so th this is raised here, right, as one, of the, uh, as one of the concerns around the lack of trust in ESG KPI measurement. Do you think part of the problem here is just uh, still so much of the ESG information comes directly from the companies? And how do we, how do we um, uh, ensure that that information is, is, is trustworthy? I would just say that there's no silver bullet here, right? We don't yeah. have a global authority that can compel mandatory disclosure, mandatory perfect disclosure from all sectors and all geography. Yeah. So it's a, a collective effort both, both bottom-up, industry-led, and also kind of uh, with the evolving policy and, and regulatory framework. Sadly, we only have time for one final question, so I'm going to put that to you, Mary Therese, and it's, um, as expected, a question about emerging markets. And so over the next two years, emerging market share of ESG-labeled bond issuance is set to double from 10 to 22%, with China leading that trend. Considering that emerging markets don't face exactly the same challenges and opportunities as, as the rest of the world. 
How will emerging markets shape the global ESG fixed income market over the coming years? Thank you, Ben. Well, clearly, I'm, I'm going to fly the flag for EM here, but um, emerging markets can often be innovators. And I think there's an argument that some of these emerging markets can lead the way. And I'm going to take Chile as an example here. Chile only issued ESG-labeled bonds in hard currency laws. In, in, um, they didn't issue any conventional bonds. They're really leading the way. And their head of public debt office has said they're now evaluating whether to be issuing a sustainability link this year, to be the first sovereign government to do so. Um, and I liken that to actually back in the 80s when actually Chile was the first country to move from defined benefit to defined contribution in terms of pensions. Yes, I think it's a misperception sometimes that emerging markets will follow when in fact they can be leaders. And I think we can see that in this scenario as well, because as we've discussed before, these are providing really interesting tools for emerging markets on their development path and to solve very real problems for sustainable growth in the future. So I think EM, it's in their interest to be leading this discussion as well, but they will need support, et cetera, as we've discussed in the past. So yes, I think it's an exciting time for emerging markets. Fantastic. So as I said, we've sadly run out of time. Um, so it uh, only remains for me to thank uh, profoundly our four speakers who've uh, given their time and their insights on this topic and to thank you uh, for, for taking part and uh, listening to this. We hope you've enjoyed it. This episode of Found in Conversation starred Mary Therese Barton, Philip Buff, Emre Tiftik and Sonia Gibbs. The host was Ben Robinson. This show is a collaboration between PICTE, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, and the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing big thinking. The executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 